Welcome to Solutions Cast, a CFC podcast that highlights cooperative network projects and leader stories, as well as economic and energy industry insights. I'm your host, Christine Pachenik, and today I'm here with John Suter, CFC's Vice President of Economic Research, and Matt Wade, CFC's Vice President of Asset Liability Management. Thanks for joining. You're welcome. Good to be here. Now, we look at you as our economic experts here at CFC. John, I know that you uh, write for Solutions, our column's financial feature, and Eyes on the Economy. And we've talked about inflation recently quite a bit in those. And it's something that we thought might be nice to take a deeper dive into uh, in a, a podcast format. That way, we could just learn a little bit about the history and also how it's affecting our co-ops. So I know as a consumer, I've definitely felt it in my pocket. We have a tradition on football Sundays uh, for chicken wings, and I kind of cringe when I go to the grocery store and buy chicken wings. I'm sure we have those items in mind that we just are, it's painful to buy right now. Um, So John, can you just give us a little bit of the background of inflation and what we might be feeling right now in the economy? Sure. Let me start off as an old timer. Uh, if you go back uh, uh, early in the 70s and 80s, that's when the last time we experienced high rates of inflation. And unfortunately, today, most investors and market analysts, they really haven't experienced high bouts of inflation like we had back then. In fact, if you look at a survey during that time period, during the 70s and 80s, more than 50% of Americans said that inflation was a high cost of living, was their single biggest problem facing the country. So uh, it's times have really changed because today we really haven't seen uh, high periods of inflation. In fact, uh, if the last time we had inflation above 3%, you have to go all the way back on an average basis to the 1970s and 80s because technically the inflation rate, whether you're talking about the headline CPI or the other different measures which we'll get into, such as the core inflation and the per- uh, personal consumption expenditures that the Fed follows, they've come down, uh, trending downwards uh, since that time period. So the quick question is, you know, why have we seen these low periods of inflation uh, recently? Uh, a lot of people just sum it up in three ways, globalization, automation, and deunionization. And with that, uh, we could turn it over and talk about the change in inflation that we're seeing in this current economy and some of the factors that have been causing it. Sure. Thanks, John. Um, if we do look at you know inflation today and where we're you know feeling it in our pockets, there's a couple categories or, or sectors of the economy where we're really seeing prices increase. You know, a couple of those are are uh, you know together in, in, in certain sectors such as rental cars, used cars, new cars, um, and there's certain drivers why uh, automobiles are are being impacted specifically. Um, But some other areas of the economy that we're also seeing higher prices um, are airfare, furniture, um, transportation, hotel rooms. Um, And, you know, if if we break down what the drivers of those price increases are, you know, it's really a handful of reasons. If we start with supply chain, and there's been a lot of talk recently about supply chain disruptions, a lot of that stems from really imbalances in the production and the demand for goods and services, driven by primarily the pandemic. I mean, if you think about it, over the course of the last 18 months to two years, the world has been impacted by COVID-19 at, at different you know, periods of time. 
So you had certain countries that were locked down when others were open, and then they would open up and another country would lock down. So if you think about the global supply chains, that causes a big issue. Cargo ships can't be as seamless as they, they were pre-COVID, um, and factories simply aren't producing goods when they need to be produced. So supply chains are, are certainly driving a lot of the price pressures that we're seeing in certain things. Another supply chain related driver of inflation is commodity prices. You know, we've seen uh, commodity prices that have risen upwards of 100% this calendar year. You know, something else that is supply chain related um, and is impacting rental cars, new cars, used car prices is semiconductor chips. Um, there's a huge demand for semiconductor chips, and um, that's basically reduced the number of new cars that are being produced uh, dramatically. You know, it's interesting to drive around and see new car dealerships with only a couple cars on the lot. You know, obviously, that's going to then flow into higher used cars because you know, if somebody needs to buy a car, um, they have no other choice. Another driver of inflation today is labor market market shortages. You know, we've seen expansive unemployment benefits uh, coupled with you know, COVID-related fears, also pandemic-related child care challenges and elder care challenges, mismatches between job needs and skill sets, uh, and then finally wage inflation. So. You know, those, those really are, are a couple of the primary drivers of why we're seeing uh, higher prices you know, in the economy. So when you think about it, uh, go back to the pandemic coming out of that, we had a big impact on the supply side to the market that Matt just talked about and the ramping up of people coming out and spending their savings because if they're not on going on vacation – or they're not traveling the world, they're stuck at home, and what are you going to do with all those savings they've been keeping in their back pockets? So we've had a huge demand shock to this economy. So demand has really increased where a supply has not been able to meet that supply. And a lot, another differentiation that we often talk about is the fact that uh, if you break the CPI out, you look at inflation from a durable's good and non-durable goods. Think about the pandemic where services were not in demand by consumers because they had fear of the virus. Anything face-to-face -face went uh, down to essentially non-activity where durable goods, automobiles like Matt talked about, boats, uh, bicycles, anything that we could do outside that was a durable good, prices extremely spiked. So. Inflation can be very tricky because you had service inflation going down where durable goods inflation was rising. So, Matt, what are some of the inflation metrics and where we are today versus pre-pandemic? Sure. There are really two metrics that the market looks at as far as inflation. The first one, the consumer price index, or typically referred to as CPI. Um, that's probably the most widely used metric. Um, CPI is produced by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it's really designed uh, to measure price changes faced by urban consumers who represent approximately 93% of the U.S. population. The CPI is structured as a basket of goods and services um, that's made up of about 80,000 items. Price data is collected via surveys 
Um, and CPI is reported really two different ways, either the headline number, which includes all 80,000 items, or uh, core CPI, uh, which removes the more volatile food and energy items from the basket. The other inflation measure and the measure that the Fed likes to uh, watch is the personal consumption expenditures, or PCE. Um, the, really, the, the main difference between CPI and PCE is that PCE takes into account all costs associated with a given good or service, not just the direct cost to consumers. The best example of this is healthcare. CPI only considers premiums, deductibles, and copayments, uh, whereas PCE is also going to include employer-provided insurance benefits. I'm just going to talk and just give everybody an example of how 2019 pre-pandemic levels compared to where we are today. In 2019, real GDP was growing more towards our long-term growth rate of 2.1%, so it was around 2.3, so slightly better. And uh, that's a good growth rate compared to what we normally grow with, but inflation was only 1.8%, so very, very low. So this is one of the troubling facts that the Fed's having because they were unable to – they want to see inflation in the economy but not that low at 1.8%. So let's transition to 2021 with this recovery, the $6 trillion fiscal government fiscal stimulus package, monetary policy that has shoved a lot of liquidity into the economy, real GDP now growing at 5.9%. So that's almost triple what we were growing in 2019. And 2021, end of year, we don't know the final number yet, but inflation is expected to end the year, according to Bloomberg, at 4.3%. And that's essentially uh, coming from the fact that we had two quarters where it's exceeded 5% on a year-over-year basis. So you can see inflation is much higher, and that's the concern that the market's looking to, especially investors, because generally when interest rates start to rise, it slows the economy down. And of course, that impacts the stock market and the bond market as well. So there's just a lot of change then based on the history, like you said, in just pre-pandemic compared to all of the changes that we're seeing in 2021. John, you talk a little bit about the consumer. And I want to dive into that a little bit more just how the consumer could potentially be impacting this. You mentioned we have more money in our pockets uh, compared to the pre-pandemic consumer. And was that helping to fuel that inflation? And now also we have a consumer confidence that has hit a seven-month low. How are, how are these factoring into the economy today? Yeah, and, and John touched on the savings rate. Now, the current savings rate is around 15% of disposable income. That's well above the historical average of, of closer to 5%. So why is the savings rate so high? If you think about it, it's a couple of things. Stimulus checks. Um, obviously, the U.S. government was very proactive in, in trying to get money into consumers' pockets uh, to pay for you know, things like housing and, 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 and groceries. But if you look at the data of stimulus check spending, what you'll see is only... 30% of stimulus checks were actually spent. 35% uh, were used to pay down debt, and 35% was saved. So that in itself is giving the consumer extra money in their pockets, which 
they're okay spending a little bit more money on something that they really want. And I would also add the thing that I think threw the market and the Fed by surprise as we the recovery started to uh, strengthen and we see uh, what's going on as far as consumption, personal consumption expenditures increasing is the variant. That's one thing uh, because obviously that throws uncertainty up back into the air. You think about parents at home. They don't know if their kids are going to be in school or out of school. Should they take go back to work? Should they stay home if one of them's uh, a home taking care of the kids? And then you also have these uh, high spikes in inflation. And most people's inflationary expectations are rising right now. So they're concerned about rising prices just like they are back in the 1970s and 80s. And that may make them a little bit more conservative as far as spending that paycheck. Yeah, so it sounds like we're starting to change our consumer habits. Mm. We don't want to buy that new car, uh, and we want to spend a little bit more on groceries because we know we need to, so why not save it and wait for paying those higher prices that we think we're going to see? So there's talk of transitory versus non-transitory. And transitory meaning this is a temporary state, right? And non-transitory meaning this is something that's going to be longer sustained, Uh and those are basic definitions by my view. Uh, but let's take a side and say, can you make a, a, a case for transitory? Yes. Well, the thing is, that is the big million-dollar question in the economy today. That is what the Fed has been preaching since day one, that these inflation spikes that we're seeing in the economy are a result of the bottlenecks that Matt talked about. And so the question is, transitory, does that mean it's going to be a couple months or is it going to be years? So we really don't know the answer to that, but let's make a case for why it is transitory. First of all, uh, real GDP is not going to be growing at the level it is right now at 6% or higher. It's going to come back down to our long-term average growth rate around 2.1%, give and take uh, without the government fiscal stimulus and the Fed starting to withdraw liquidity in the economy. Matt already talked about the supply-side adjustments. We hope to have this demand shock be filled by supply-side uh, reopenings. That should take months, not years, hopefully. Uh, the commodity prices are at a cyclical high. Uh, we don't expect them to continue to ramp up. We expect them to come back down. Uh, consumer spending will probably slow. We still have, remember, 5.1 million Americans that are still not employed. And, of course, with the labor market shortages, that means the economy is not going to, again, be growing as fast because we grow this economy by employing people and then them spending their hard-earned money out on consumption, which represents two-thirds of GDP. And then the last thing is that, remember, during the first quarter of last year, services and even um, the rest of some durables, that, that spending went essentially was non-existent. I mean, there was, unless you were essential doctor performing a service at a hospital, if it was elective surgery, you did not have a customer at that time. So we're comparing today's prices to uh, last year's prices, which is a much lower base. So we need to get out of that period as well in order to have a fair comparison and rely more on the trend data that we're starting to see. Now. Nope. Matt, can you give us the other side of that? What's going to make it non-transitory, in your view, uh, that it has more staying power? Yeah, sure. You know, I think, like John touched on, the thing that makes this inflationary period so challenging is we're coming out of a pandemic. 
you know, most business cycles, there's no pandemic that's causing inflation numbers that are hard to explain, right? So the argument between transitory and non-transitory, it's hard to decide what is or isn't. Um, but if we look at non-transitory or, or some arguments for a non-transitory period, it, I would say, you know, one of the big things is housing. Housing makes up 30% of CPI. Um, housing prices are up 20% year over year. You know, we haven't seen um, appreciation like that since before the financial crisis. Because it makes up such a big percentage of CPI, as long as housing remains elevated, housing prices remain elevated, we're going to see high inflation. If you think about leases, a lot of leases are one-year term, two-year term. As those leases come up for renewal, they're going to be renewed at likely higher rates. So, you know, housing is going to be a big driver or a big decision maker for whether or not inflation is temporary or more long term. Also, consumers, like we talked about, the dry powder. Dry powder is going to lead to the ability to pay more for products. So um, as long as we see savings rates high and, and cash in consumers' pockets, you know, that's, a, that's a driver to longer-term inflation. Wage growth as well. We haven't seen wage higher wage wages across the entire economy, certain sectors like transportation, housing and leisure, you've seen some higher uh, wages. But if we see that uh, more broadly across the economy, that will certainly lead to longer term uh, inflation as well. Commodities, I did touch on that earlier, oil, natural gas, all up close to 100% this year. Although they are close to their cyclical highs, a lot of this is, is based on you know, supply and demand. OPEC Plus has agreed to uh, limit supply increases, which by doing that, it's going to keep prices high. So as long as production remains below demand, um, inflation could remain high for quite some time. All right. So now let's bring this back into the view of electric co-ops. I mean, they must be feeling it. What areas are they feeling all of this inflation in? Well, we posed that question to some of our colleagues out in the field, and uh, what we assumed was probably happening is happening, and that is uh, the materials that are needed to run a co-op from transformers to PCV pipes to insulators the lead times in order to order these materials are being stretched out considerably. Some almost triple what it used to be. And the fact is uh, puts a co-op in a tough position because, first of all, the lead times are long, and then they got to worry about, well, how much should I order given the length of time? Should I order less? Should I order more? So if they're carrying more inventory, that's more cost. So we're seeing that uh, cost uh, being implemented on the co-op on a pretty uh, consistent basis in most areas. The other area where we have heard of some inflationary pressures is uh, when it comes to certain wages, such as that of linemen. Um, certain areas of the country are experiencing um, some pressures from investor-owned utilities and those higher wages that the, the investor-owned utilities are offering obviously are, are putting wage pressures on what the co-ops have to, have to pay as well. And how about rate studies? Is this something that 
the impact of inflation might have an effect on? I thought that might have an impact, but according to our in-house rate modeling experts, they base their rate cases on base case historical costs. So they'll pick a year and they'll use the historical costs and they'll only factor inflation in if it's a known fact that it's going to happen in the future years. Apparently, there's rules of things you can include and you can't include in rate cases. They, not every state is regulated, but they do kind of follow those uh, because uh, it's a safer bet. And uh, for the most part, they do not assume any inflation in their historical numbers when they're coming up with rate design. So we haven't talked much about the Fed, and let's go into that a little bit. They have a dual mandate of dual employment and low inflation. Can you tell me why is the Fed willing to live up with high inflation when the goal is backfilling potentially 6 million missing jobs since the beginning of the pandemic? Well, that's been uh, an interesting phenomenon that has occurred. And uh, part of the transitioning has been the Fed's view on inflation itself. Because generally in the past, one of the reasons why they've been able to bring inflation down and it's been so low is because they've been very preemptive. So many of these chairmen... They lived through the 70s and 80s. And so when inflation started to pop up and spike, they started to raise the overnight federal funds rate very quickly. And it's usually in 25 basis point increments. And we've seen some very uh, rapid increases in order to tighten policy. But let's not be uh, fooled. Central bankers make mistakes, and they don't want to overshoot and raise the rate sooner than they have to because that will hurt the recovery. So this past year, they decided to make a change in how they're going to manage inflation, and that is they're going to switch to an averaging. So it will compensate for periods when it's been below their 2% threshold, and they're going to allow the inflation to run higher, so to allow the economy to run hot above 2%, so that over the long term it averages to 2%, and they're relying on this. And I think everybody needs to understand is why is inflation such a big threat? Well, you just need to look at Venezuela. With five-digit inflation, uh, their government has lost control. Their currency is worthless. And so they're essentially doing business on the American dollar if they can buy it. So it can be very destabilizing. And so that's the big concern. But we're nowhere near that. But the fact of that is the Fed is focusing more on getting Americans back to work and growing this economy and not bigging digging a bigger hole than what we have to uh, and worrying about inflation as an afterthought. And Matt, is it true that the Fed is looking to move up rate increases? What? Why are they looking to do that? Yeah, the market is now predicting a, uh, a rate hike towards the end of 2022, whereas before it was more first quarter of 2023. Um, you know, based on what the Fed has has said over the course of the last few weeks, they are concerned about inflation, and they do think it's going to persist for longer than what they initially thought. Um, so the market's definitely interpreting that as a likely increase sooner rather than later. All right. Now, just to wrap this up, uh, can you tell me what would be top of mind for electric co-ops and their executives as they move into 2022? Well, I think for one thing, as Matt kind of alluded to, this transitory period could be a lot longer than what we initially think. So 
I think the problems that we're seeing on the material lead times as far as ordering and the cost increases are here to stay at least for a temporary time period. The question, the million dollar question is like how long is that going, you're going to have to battle that and that uncertainty obviously makes business harder. Powell's always said uncertainty is the enemy of business. As far as wages are concerned, uh, hopefully that will settle down sometime in next year. I think the harder hit sectors are in the retail, uh, entertainment, and leisure because there people don't want to do those jobs anymore. Uh, the, I read a story the other day that guy said, do I want to work uh, 60 hours a week and be broke or do I just want to not work and be broke? So that's the, uh, the trade-off that some of these people are working with. I mean, it's just not that. It's a changing of priorities. Many people want to work from home. That is a big thing right now. It's affecting many companies, including here at CSC. So uh, these are the things that you're going to have to be combating with. I don't think they're going away anytime soon. And expect to see some volatility more so uh, as we move forward in the next six months. All right. Well, thank you, Matt and John, for joining us today. As always, I look forward to your updates, and we'll be sure to check back in with you on these economic developments. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Solutions Cast. Be sure to subscribe to get the next episode and check nrucfc.coop slash solutions for more electric cooperative news.